Let's pray. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit might be pressing through all of the sin that so easily entangles us, all of the distractions that so easily turn us aside, and that though we are sinners, that you would speak your word to us. Lord, though I am a sinner, I pray that you would use me to proclaim it clearly and truly. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. Amen. I feel like a lot of Christians are constantly searching for some source of power, some way to make the church great and draw people to Jesus and to to succeed in life and just to have that power in the world. And we do that in different places. Like I think some people look to marketing and technology as that source of power. Some churches seem to have the idea that if they just get their branding right and have the right programs and employ the right strategies, that then the church can be great again and the gospel can go out to the nations. Other Christians, I think, spend time looking for sort of a spiritual secret to have that power, that if they can just find a certain mantra or set of practices or read the right book, that then suddenly the church will be great and they'll be triumphing in their Christian life And if they just discover that secret. Still other Christians, I think, often look to politics for that power. They, they, they're fearful about the future, and they say if we can just get the right people in office and the right policies passed and the right people on the Supreme Court, that then the church will be great and the gospel will go out to the nations again. And the problem with all of that is that while there is a place for thinking about strategy and, you know, I mean, there's a place for thinking about things like politics, none of those things are true sources of spiritual power. And they all end up leading us astray. In the name of marketing, we easily abandon fundamental truths of Christianity and fail to teach them. In the names of spiritual secrets, we are often led astray into false teaching. And even if we aren't, we often lose sight of Jesus and stop centering our lives on him. In the name of political power, we will often compromise ourselves and still not get the things that we're seeking. All of those sources of power will ultimately lead us astray. And I say all of that up front because, in a sense, that topic of power is exactly what these stories about Jesus that we just heard are about. This passage is trying to tell us the true source of power that we have in the Christian life, the true source of power. And so we're going to just look at these stories, and I just want us to ask two questions. One is, how do we fall out of love with worldly power? And two, where do we find true power as Christians? So those are the two questions. So as we look at these stories, we see a couple of things about Jesus's power. First, we recognize his power over demons. Let's look at verse 33. It says, And in the synagogue where there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now we're going to talk about demons in a minute, all right? Because I know that some of us have plenty of questions about that. But just notice what's going on. Jesus is going around preaching, and he's confronted by this man who is possessed by this demon. And the demon causes him to shout out. But what's striking is the demon knows who Jesus is, And he's afraid of him. He has this clear sense that Jesus might be here to destroy him. 
Here's how Jesus responds in verse 35. It says that Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. So notice Jesus simply speaks to the demon, and it is forced to be silent and to come out of this guy. He has power. We see the same thing a little later in verse 41. Jesus is ministering to great crowds. And it says, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And we might wonder why he didn't let them speak and tell people that he was the Son of God. And that's a topic we'll actually take up later in our sermon series through the book of Luke. But again, here is the point for us right now, that Jesus, simply by speaking, has absolute power over demons and dark spiritual forces in the world. Now, we should probably pause there for a minute and talk about demons and demonic possession and all of that stuff, because these stories, when we encounter them about Jesus, can feel really strange to us. For most Christians, I think, we actually can make two mistakes at the same time when we think about demons and the demonic. We can both think too much of them and too little. Let me explain what I mean. On the one hand, too much. I think it's easy for us to focus on these stories in the wrong way or become fascinated with certain ideas surrounding ideas like demons that are problematic. First of all, just what are demons in the Bible? Well, we know from Scripture that they are evil spiritual forces that serve Satan and are at work in the world. We know that, um, that, that they are moving and that they at times influence events in history. But that's really about all that we know in Scripture about them. We think they're probably fallen angels, although even that is a little bit biblically debatable, but it does not go into great detail about them. And I say that first because some Christians try to say a lot more than that about demons, and they have all of these ideas about how there's specific demons for specific struggles, and you pray up hedges of protection, and demons have certain principalities over certain areas and locations, and all of that stuff is just probably not biblical. A lot of it's based off of these sort of side mentions of things in half sentences in the Bible that aren't about that at all, but they build these whole theologies on that that those mentions just can't sustain. And we should also recognize that the specific pattern of demonic activity we see in Jesus's ministry, the rest of scripture probably wants us to understand that that is very rare in what we experience. Meaning, meaning this, thinking about like demons possessing people in this kind of way. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of instances in the whole Old Testament where that does happen. So for example, King Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit. And after the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, there are a couple of instances where we see these kinds of conflicts in the lives of the apostles. So for example, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul casts a demon out of this woman, and in Acts 19, we're told that the apostles are casting out some evil spirits. But, but nowhere in the, the New Testament are there kind of instructions for us on how we're supposed to do that, or the idea that this is somehow going to be normal to our experience of the world. Again, that, that's what the Bible itself would lead us to conclude. And also, we should say on top of that, that even in Jesus's ministry, that 
um, that he, he spends a lot of time healing things that aren't just demonic possessions. There are also people who get really fascinated with it, this idea that end up trying to sort of make all sickness somehow tied to the demonic. But as we'll see in our next story here in this passage, Jesus heals lots of sicknesses that are not in any way influenced by demonic activity. And so those kind of television preachers that seem to imply to people that they should what they need is an exorcism instead of going to the doctor. That's also not biblical. Now listen, I say all of that, and you might be, be wrestling, so there is a very real spiritual struggle we are in that includes demonic activity in the world, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But I say all of that first because we should understand in these stories of Jesus that there's something specific going on here which is that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection, that is the, the climactic battle, the central conflict of all of human history. And so the sorts of frequency and obviousness of demonic opposition to Jesus is in many ways a feature of that centrality of Jesus. So we can in different ways think too much about the demonic, but at the same time, we also think far too little about the spiritual realities and spiritual dimensions of our lives. Um, here's what I mean. In stories like this, where demons like possess someone and talk through them, while scripture would incline us to probably think that those are going to be very rare in our experience of the world, spiritual conflict with the dark spiritual forces of the world in a more general way is a constant reality of our lives. Let me show you what I mean. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of those different terms that Paul uses are different ways of speaking of the, the evil, demonic, spiritual powers that are at work in and lie behind the world. And he's saying that we're constantly in conflict, struggling with those spiritual forces. But here's the thing. What is the struggle that Paul is talking about? Well, if you look back at the letter to Ephesus, what are the things the people in Ephesus are struggling with? Well, they're struggling with divisions of the church. They're struggling with the failure to love each other. They're struggling with temptations to sin. They're struggling with issues like husbands not loving their wives and children not respecting their parents and parents being harsh with their children. Those are the struggles they have, and those sound pretty ordinary, right? But Paul says that it is in those sorts of things that we are not struggling against flesh and blood, but against evil powers and spiritual forces in the world. And the reason I point that out is because by focusing on the demonic in this kind of one specific way that we see these conflicts in Jesus's ministry, I think we often end up blinded to that broader reality. Let me show you what I mean. Think about... Think about Think about the occult, right? Practices that we would think of as occult. So tarot cards and Ouija boards and mediums and psychics and all that stuff. Now scripture does call Christians not to use those things. And the reason is because in them you are seeking spiritual power without seeking it from God. And that is always sinful. But I think Christians tend to view those things as somehow different than the ordinary temptations of life. Like, like, let's say that some kid plays around with a Ouija board at a birthday party, and then they're having these sort of fantasies or dreams that seem to be tempting them to sin. We would hear a story like that, and we would be like, oh, like that's, that's demons, there's spiritual conflict going on there. But if that same kid watches television advertisements, 
and ends up with those same fantasies and dreams that might be tempting them to sin, we would just call that good marketing. And that's an issue because what scripture wants to say is that in every, in both of those cases equally, there is a spiritual struggle happening in our world. That those things that seem ordinary to us are just as spiritually charged as everything else. A, a Wiccan who worships Diana and a corporate CEO who worships money and a nationalist who worships the power of the state and all of us, when we worship some created thing instead of our creator, are equally in a spiritual conflict for our souls and siding with the enemy. And, and I say that because, frankly, Diana worship is not the one of those that I worry about us for. So we need to recognize that spiritual struggle that lies behind all of our lives. But again, we need to recognize in that that this text wants us to see that Jesus has power over those things, that he triumphs over them with but a word. So Jesus has power over demons, and then these stories also show us that Jesus has power over death. He has power over death. Pick up in verse 38. And Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. So Jesus comes to the house of Simon Peter, one of the disciples. And just an interesting note, this is one of the two places in the New Testament where we realize that Peter, who who you know, wrote several books of the New Testament, who is one of the leaders of the early church, uh, was married. And in fact, we know from some of the early church fathers that his wife traveled with and helped him in his ministry. That's just one of those things that I think it's easy for us to kind of not have in our mental picture of these people, but file that away. But anyway, they ask Jesus for help. And then here's what Jesus does. Jesus stood over Peter's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Notice that word rebuked. It's the same word that's used for what Jesus does with the demon. Jesus simply speaks, and the fever leaves Peter's mother-in-law. And she is healed immediately and completely, so much so that she then jumps up out of bed and starts showing hospitality and caring for these guests in her home. Now, this was kind of private, but I'm sure word went out even from Peter's household, and people had already heard about Jesus casting out the demon. And so we have then all these people bringing the sick to Jesus in verse 40. It says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So let's talk for a minute about Jesus' healing ministry. I think we just take it for granted. Jesus healed people. But why did he do that? I mean, I think if we've thought about it, what we tend to say is something like, well, he did it to prove that he was God so that people would listen to him. And it's not wrong. I mean, Jesus could have also just like levitated up into the air and blasted the Pharisees with lightning bolts and probably more so than in his healing ministry, he would have proven to everyone that he was God. So why healing? Answer, in his ministry, Jesus is demonstrating his power over death and therefore the curse of sin. He's demonstrating his power over death and therefore the curse of sin. In Scripture's story, our first parents rebel against God and sin, and because of that, death comes into the world. 
And we all are under that curse that fell on them, and we all participate in their sin and rebellion when we fail to obey God. And because of that, our world is cursed with death. And when death is talked about there in Scripture, that includes our physical deaths, that includes spiritual death, and that includes all of the brokenness that runs along with death, disease and disability and all of the ways that we are broken and wounded physically. And what Jesus is doing in his ministry is he is undoing that curse. With a word, with a touch, healing and life are flowing out of him because he is demonstrating that he has power over all of the sinful forces of this world. In casting out demons, Jesus shows that he is triumphing over spiritual death and the spiritual powers in this world. And in healing the sick, Jesus is demonstrating that he has triumphed over physical death and has power over all of the physical brokenness of this world. And of course, all of that culminates in the cross and resurrection. When he suffers the guilt for our sins, and when he breaks the power of Satan and the grave, and when he rises again on the third day victorious, all of this is pointing forward to that, and that is the climax of this reality. The point of which is to say that Jesus has all power and dominion. There is no force in this world that can oppose him. And so, this is the payoff for us with our question that we're wrestling with, there is no force in this world that can offer us a power that Jesus does not already have. Nothing in this world can give you anything that Jesus does not have. What what are they offering you? Power over your physical circumstances? Jesus is the one who ultimately has that power. Are they threatening you with death or to protect you from someone else killing you? Jesus is the one who ultimately has that power. Are they claiming some sort of spiritual insight or, or thing that they can give you to fix your life? Jesus is the one that has all of that power. And so the answer to our first question, which is how can we fall out of love with those promises of power that the world gives us? The answer to that question is to fall more and more in love with Jesus, who is the source of all true power. But that said, there's a second question. We can say all of that and still say, okay, so Jesus has all power, but, but how do I get that? How, how does that connect to me so that I can actually see that power at work in my life? And the answer to that in this story is God's word. All of these stories about the power of Jesus are actually demonstrations of the power of God's word. Let me show that to you. So if you go back to verse 31, it says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So Jesus starts in this story, not with healing, not with exorcisms, but he starts with preaching. And people are taken aback when they hear him speak the word of God to them, because it comes with authority. And then look what they say in verse 36. So he preaches, and then he casts out this demon, and then they say this. It says, they were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Here's what that's saying. That's saying that like the the sign of how much power the words of Jesus has, the sign of the power of his preaching is, is that that power includes the power to command and cast out demons. We get another example of that centrality of God's word and his power at the end of this story. It says that when, G, when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. 
and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. So Jesus heals people and casts out demons late into the night. And the next morning, he rises and gets away from the people to be alone with the Father, which would be another sermon, but that is a good reminder that we need to seek that recentering time with God. But the people come and seek him out, and they try to prevent him from leaving. They say, Jesus, look, there's all these sick people still to be healed. There's all these people we know who, who need to have demons cast out of them. Jesus, stay here and do this work. And here's how Jesus responds. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Now pay attention there. Jesus has done a couple of things. He has cast out demons and he has healed the sick and he has preached the word. Which of those does he say is his purpose? It's the word. The word is the central thing. Proclaiming the good news of God's word is the central thing that Jesus is about. That in his ministry, he both does great works of power and he proclaims the good news of God. And those are both important. You don't want to take either of them out, but they are not equal. The works of power actually serve the word of God. When we think about that as Christians, first of all, we should recognize that we are called by that to proclaim the word of God as well. Um, look, as Christians, sort of like Jesus, we're called both to do good works in the world and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, to do both of those things. And they are both important. What I'm about to say does not mean that we should not do good works. That is a part of our ministry, and it is meant to adorn and accompany our proclamation of the gospel but what I think happens to a lot of us is that we, we end up using the good works as an excuse not to proclaim. And that's a problem because they're not equally important. I, I think about like people love to quote St. Francis of Assisi supposedly saying that you preach the gospel continually and use words if necessary. And I say supposedly because there's no evidence St. Francis said that. But um, but you've heard that, right? And that's not wrong because our good works should accompany the proclamation of the gospel. But in scripture, the word of God must always be verbally proclaimed. And it does not gain its power until that has happened. I mean, if you do a lot of good works and never actually speak the gospel, and I think that's our temptation, right? We use that to say like, man, like it would be uncomfortable to talk about this. So I'll just like try to be a good person and then the words won't be necessary, but, but the issue with that is that all that people will think at that point is that you are a nice person and they're never going to actually come to know Jesus through that. If Jesus had gone around healing people and casting out demons, but he never preached and proclaimed the word of God, Christianity wouldn't exist. The world wouldn't have been changed. That people would have thought, well, he was a nice person and maybe we'd have some stories and some history books about this guy who lived 2,000 years ago and did some weird stuff. But we would not have had salvation come to the world. The Christian mission is only fully accomplished once the gospel has been proclaimed. But here's the thing. The reason that is true, the reason we have to recognize that is because of the power of God's word. That, that the power of God is unleashed when we speak God's word to people. We're actually tapping into that divine source of power when we read scripture and when we meditate on it and when we store it in our hearts and when we speak it to others. That is actually tapping into the same source of power that allows Jesus to cast out demons and heal the sick. Now, of course, 
it's going to work out somewhat differently in our lives. Jesus, as God, is able to wield that power directly. We always humbly have to come to him and, um, and you know, and ask him and submission to him um, to, to work through that. But, but here's the thing. God's word is powerful. It is powerful. And we often have failed to recognize that. Why is Christianity struggling in America? The single biggest reason is because we have disconnected ourselves from the power of the word of God. We have failed to take up God's word and to use it. We failed to take it up and failed to use it. Let me, let me just try to show you what I mean by that, all right? And this might be kind of challenging, but okay. First of all, people talk about how young people are leaving the Christian faith which at least in terms of how people identify is true. When you see how many people are identified as Christian, right? The people born before 1945, the silent generation, 85% of them identified as Christians. For baby boomers, it's 78%. For Generation X, it's 71%. For millennials like me, it's 57%. So that's a real thing, that young people are much less likely to identify as Christian. Why is that? When Christians talk about it, what I almost always hear them talk about is the world, that it's those evil, secular people out in the world that are stealing our children away. And I don't think that's true. I just gave that stat from the Pew Center. Um, They asked those people who left Christianity um, and who stayed, but one of the questions they asked him was the simple question, did your parents teach you about your faith? Did they teach you about the Bible and read scripture with you and do those things to teach you about your faith? And if you were raised by Christian parents that regularly did that, meaning daily, weekly, were teaching you (laughs) those things, 8% of those kids left Christianity. If you were in a home that rarely or never did that, that just like went to church a couple times a year and never really, you know, dug into scripture with their kids or taught them those things, 21% of those young people left Christianity. And part of the reason for the shift is that, the, in absolute terms, the people in that category were much larger than the people in the 8% category. Or LifeWay, which is a Christian research organization, did this massive study of parents published in 2018 asking about things they did with children. And then they tried to, to measure how much of an impact those things had on whether those children stayed in the faith as adults. All right, And they found a bunch of different things, but the number one predictor almost double any other predictor was that parents read the Bible with their children or as they got older had made their children read the Bible themselves. That that by far was the single biggest predictor. And the next two were that they regularly prayed with their children and that they regularly had their children engaged at and serving in the local church. All of which is to say that those kids were being exposed to the word of God directly themselves and then in prayer and in the preaching and gathered worship of the church. Those were the things that were the strongest predictors of whether those kids would continue in the faith. All right, now here's the hard truth. And first to be clear, individual people have to walk their own roads and children obviously have to walk their own paths and Um, You as a parent cannot force your kids to follow Jesus, and none of us know with any specific child what their story is going to be. But speaking generally about Christianity in America, the biggest reason young people have left the faith is because we did not raise them in it. 
We did not expose them to the power of the word of God. The world is always trying to deceive us and lead us astray, right? It's always, for all of history, been trying to, you know, to lead children away from Jesus. That's not what's changed. What's changed is that we have failed in many ways in our commitment to do that. And oftentimes that failure has been generational. I know part of why some of us feel like we struggle with doing that in our lives is because, frankly, we weren't given that kind of deep training as children. And if that's you, we got to grow in this too, and I want to walk alongside you. But the reason I say all of that is to say this. God's word has not failed. It is still powerful. It's just that too often we have watered it down and made it easy and avoided that power. We don't study it. We don't clearly proclaim it. We don't hide it in our hearts. We don't speak it to each other. And that has consequences. But here's the thing. It does not have to be that way. That's why I feel like we can confront that hard truth because this word of God is still powerful and living and active. God has armed us for the spiritual battles, the emotional battles, the physical battles that we will face in this world. He has armed us, not with worldly power, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The question is whether we will take up that sword, whether we will learn how to wield it and train in its use, and so be equipped and ready. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon talks about Scripture like this. He says, this weapon is good at all points, good for defense and for attack, to guard our whole person or to strike through the joints and marrow of the foe. You cannot be in a condition that the word of God has not provided. The word has as many faces and eyes as providence itself. You will find it unfailing in all periods of your life, in all circumstances, in all companies, in all trials, and under all difficulties. Were it fallible, it would be useless in emergencies, but its unerring truth renders it precious beyond all price to the soldiers of the cross. So that is where we find God's power. It's in God's word. So then as we close, let me just give a couple of practical thoughts about how we can grow in our connection to that power. At its simplest level, if everything we've said is true, then that means that we should read God's word. We should read it, which I know maybe maybe should go without saying, but but here's the thing. I want just a couple of things about that. One, I recognize that that is hard for us, especially if we were not raised regularly digging into and reading God's word, that that will be a challenging process. And if that is you, I just want to say again, I am here to help. It is worth it. But yeah, there will be times that, you know, that you read stuff, especially in some parts of scripture, and you're like, what is going on? That, we're not going to dig into all of that, but, but I want to acknowledge that. But it is still powerful, even then. In addition, I think it's important for us to actually grow in reading the Bible itself, by, by which I mean that, um, that there are books of devotionals. Devotionals are great. I, I wrote a devotional book once, but I worry sometimes that they can actually disconnect us from that power. Because if you read like two verses of the Bible and then two pages of somebody talking about stuff, you feel like you've read a whole lot of God's word, but really you've barely dipped your toe in it. But, but all that said, spend some time in God's word, right? That, that would be the first thing this calls us to. Read through a book of it. Set aside some daily time to do that. You might struggle, like we said, but it will be worth it. A second thing to think about, especially if you're in that place where you feel like you struggle, is to read God's word 
with other people. The Bible study, right, is a classic way to do this, gathering with other believers to open God's word and talk about it together. I've just, I've really enjoyed even lately, we've been having an online Bible study on Sunday nights working through the book of Colossians. You would be welcome to join us for that or to join some other group or even just call a friend or two and say, hey, let's, let's read through a gospel or one of Paul's letters and just talk about it a little bit. And then one other useful practice that I'll mention in terms of tapping into the power of God's word is memorizing scripture. And this is a discipline that might be really foreign to some of us. And this is a discipline that I acknowledge that while I work at it, I can be pretty inconsistent about. But it is powerful too. As we store God's words in our mind, in our hearts, it actually becomes a resource we can draw in, in struggles with sin, and as we seek to bless and serve the world. The, the system that I've used and that I use is called Fighter Verses, and you can find that online. There's apps for it and stuff, or you can use some other system. There's several that are out there, or just when you come across a passage of scripture that's moving to you, you can write it down and work on it. But that is also a good way to tap into that power. But in all of that, as we read God's word alone and together and seek to memorize it, remember the reason. When we come to scripture, We are coming to a source of power that we can only begin to imagine. This is the power of God that animated Jesus' ministry, the power of God that caused demons to tremble and that undoes death itself. That is the power of God that is available to us and can transform our lives and that will ultimately bring life and restoration to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you did not simply stay in heaven, invisible and unknowable to us, but that you have revealed yourself to us, Lord, through Jesus Christ, by your Holy Spirit, and through the scriptures that that, that they ultimately gave us. Jesus, I pray that we might be diligent in taking it up and studying it. I pray that through it, you would be at work to break the idols that are in our hearts and the false promises of this world, that you would train us to engage in the spiritual battle, that we would take up the sword of the Spirit and faithfully fight against the destruction and bentness of sin. Father, I pray that you would work that in the hearts of your people here at Kishwaukee Church. I pray that for us, that we would have a passion for knowing and proclaiming your word. And I pray that for your church in America, Lord, that we would have a passion for knowing and proclaiming your word rather than using it as a tool simply to help us serve other gods. Pray that you would be with us now. Speak to us. Encourage us with the good news of the gospel. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, friends, let's join together in the prayer that Jesus, in his word, taught us to pray.